Today we have back with us yet again, Dr. David Perlmutter. You know him as the number one New York Times bestselling author of Grain Brain. And if you hop on over to Dr. Perlmutter's website, drperlmutter.com, you can click on shop and you'll see these supplements that are there and they become very popular because of their quality. Dr. Perlmutter, tell us why quality is so important when you're looking at supplements. Jimmy, you know that quality is really very, very important these days. There are certainly plenty of products on the market that are maybe sketchy would be an appropriate word. So we decided to have our manufacturing done by a company that is actually certified pharmaceutical grade nutritional supplements. So this is the highest level of quality. When you want to buy your CoQ10 or alpha lipoic acid or DHA, any of those important supplements, including things like probiotics, quality is really the most important characteristic that you have to look for. Yeah. So if you want to get some of those high quality pharmaceutical grade supplements, hop on over to drperlmutter.com, click on shop and check them all out. Coming up in episode 874, Dr. Josh Turknet. It's the Livin' Levita Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore. And now, here's Jimmy. Welcome back to the Livin' La Vida Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore. And today I'm very pleased to welcome to the podcast a gentleman by the name of Dr. Joshua Turknet. He is a board-certified neurologist. He's the founder of the Atlanta Center for Headache Relief. You got headaches? This is your man. Since graduating from Emory University School of Medicine in 2001, he has conducted clinical research in areas that include Alzheimer's disease, stroke, migraine, epilepsy, and Parkinson's disease. And you might look at all those uh, lists of diseases and say, hmm, aren't those the ones that ketogenic diets help with? Uh, Oh, yeah. And he's going to talk about that today. He's got a book I want you to know about called The Migraine Miracle, a sugar-free, gluten-free ancestral diet to reduce inflammation and relieve your headaches for good. Dr. Turknet, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Jimmy. I'm happy to be here. And actually, I'm going to call you Josh the rest of the way because it's hard to say your last name <laughs> over and over. <laughs> Please do. But I'm more uh, comfortable with that anyhow. I actually uh, got to meet you in person at the uh, recent Ancestral Health Symposium in Berkeley. Uh, and you're doing a lot of great work down there in the Atlanta, Georgia area. Tell us a little more about yourself, how you got interested in wanting to be uh, doing what you're doing today. Yeah, sure. So I'm a... Uh, clinical neurologist, so I have a practice here in Atlanta, see all types of neurological patients, and, you know, as as is the case with most neurologists, the thing we probably see the most of is migraine headaches, and I'm actually also a, a headache sufferer myself, so my, my headache started when I was what's my her early name? teens. <laughs> what's that? I say, what's her name? <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting you in trouble already. Yes, yeah, sh- don't just, let's not go there. <laughs> Um, But yeah, so mine started really early. Um, You know, that was part of the reason I ended up interested in neurology. My mom had migraines really bad. Um, So, you know, part of part of my desire to get into it was to help myself, help her and help anybody else who was who was struggling with it. And uh, and it was about four or five years ago now that I kind of got onto the nutrition 
kick. Um, I have Kurt Harris to blame, who I think he's <laughs> oh, on yeah. the show before. Yep. Um, so got just randomly onto his blog at one point, which made a whole lot of sense. And then I <clears throat> ended up uh, reading Gary Taubes' book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, and by that point was raging. Um, and uh, and so that's back then was when I you know changed uh, how I was eating. And with, you know, sort of no expectation of any sort of specific health benefit, but just to sort of, you know, get my health in order and feel better and, and eat in a way that was, uh, you know, intellectually consistent with what I was now thinking about nutrition. And uh, one of the incredible things that happened was that my migraines went away. And um, so I thought that was pretty profound. And so, you know, at that point... Unexpected, huh? Yeah, completely unexpected. I mean, at first I didn't, you know, it took me a while to say, to, to you know, to, to tell myself this was a real real thing. You know, this had actually happened. Now, let's explore um, that a little bit because uh-huh. here you are, an expert in things of the brain, <laughs> and <laughs> <Exactly>. yet <laughs> you, you were flabbergasted to find that nutrition played some kind of a role, maybe for the first time in your medical career. Right. Well, I mean, certainly um, an appreciation for how big of a role it can play. Okay. And, uh, and you know, it, that was uh, obviously a humbling experience. So, yeah, here I was, a, quote, expert, you know, in the very thing that I'm, you know, that's that just inadvertently discovered a, a way to get rid of. Right. Um, and, you know, had no awareness whatsoever. Now, we've known for a long time that diet and lifestyle, you know, matters a lot when right. it comes to migraines. But somehow, I mean, well, I you know, have my ideas of why, but we've, you know, missed sort of the biggest pieces of all. Why? Um, why do you think we've but, done that? Is it, is it a obsession about maybe seeing things people are allergic to that maybe that's been the focus and not really on maybe blood sugar and insulin impact of foods yeah. consumed? I think it probably... I mean that's part of it. I but I and I and part of it too, just because of how prevalent the you know how because everybody ate the same way. Right. You know because um, you know the same thing which has been said about if everybody smoked, we would never have discovered that smoking caused lung cancer. Hmm. Well, if everybody eats the same way, and, and we'd probably be looking at some rare genetic mutations or you know these unusual environmental factors to account for differences between people who get cancer and don't, and we'd never figure out that the smoking was the big thing. And I think that's kind of where we were at, in my view, with migraines. We had all these little pieces of little things that contribute to it, but the thing that was kind of always there in the background that was kind of keeping us so close to, especially those of us who were predisposed to it, so close to triggering a migraine was the standard dietary pattern and, and sort of the whole metabolic you know, uh, the milieu that, that that creates inside of us. And, and that's what was sort of, you know, setting the stage for us to always be at risk of, of triggering migraines. So right. it was the, you know, inability to see that because it was just so prevalent. So, Josh, what are the statistics of people in America who are suffering from migraines? Well, it's about um, one in five women and uh, maybe one in eight, one to 10 men. So it's, you know, 10 to 15% of the population. My bias is that's probably a pretty big Low. underestimate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and because, and, and uh, when you say that is, I'm, I'm assuming that's like frequency of at least once a week. Uh, well, how do they determine those statistics? 
A lot of that's based on whether or not the people's headaches meet sort of the International Headache Society's criteria for, for diagnosis, which are pretty strict. So they require yeah. all these, you know, cluster of features. A and severity so, of, of pain. Severity, and that kind of, yeah. right. So we've, I think we've um, divided headaches, it, it, you know, too much. We, we've sort of considered only one thing as migraine when it's probably this pretty big spectrum of things. And, um and so, I, yeah, I think that's a, the, the current figures are probably a big underestimate. And you, I can usually I can usually tease out a history of migraine in most people. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting. I'm talking to you today, the migraine specialist, and I woke up this morning and my jaw was hurting, and so I've got shooting pain into my mouth, my ear, and into my temple in my, in my head. It's, it's kind of funny. I'm talking to a guy about having a migraine <laughs> yeah. headache, and I've got probably one of the worst headaches I've, I probably have ever had in my life. So, oh, goodness. Um, so if I start talking funny, you know why. But <laughs> Yeah, I'll know why. Yeah, if you need a break, let me know. <laughs> so let's get into headaches themselves. Um, what differentiates just a common headache um, with what you're referring to with migraines? What, what yeah. Can you kind of give us the clinical difference? Well, the clinical difference, you know, the, the way it's taught is, um, you know, A, is, is the severity of the headache. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also migraines are typically accompanied by, you know, the sensitivity to lights uh, and, and sounds. And then usually um, maybe accompanied by nausea and vomiting. And then, by definition, have to be severe, yeah. and so forth. And and uh, in some cases, can be preceded by sort of neurological dysfunction of some sort, like the disturbance in vision or a disturbance in sensation, etc. So that's kind of sort of the classic cluster of symptoms that uh, that's migraine. Uh, my bias is. I'm not sure we should consider any head pain that doesn't have a pathological reason mm-hmm. um, as as anything but migraine or in that same family. So, you know, I think anything that sh- that's uh, that's head pain without a without any kind of pathological disturbance inside the head or anything that's you know that's that that needs our attention to 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 get out of our skull you know, should be considered in the migraine family. Gotcha. So, and that would, that would include a lot of, you know, so things like people talk about tension headaches, which is sort yeah. of low grade head pain and so forth that really, you know, isn't coming from, you know, anything in the head that shouldn't be there. Isn't coming from, you know, you haven't been hit with a hammer. You just have pain in your head for no good reason. And it's basically the brain's pain sensing, pain sensing structures that, you know, for the skull being turned on, uh, without anything to, you know, outside that should have turned them on. So it's kind of pain for no reason. Yeah. So is that a form of inflammation that would show up on say, a C-reactive protein test, or how would people know if this is something that needs to be dealt with through their nutrition? Um, well, my bi- I mean, I think that probably most all of it um, is a reflection of, of it, you know, nutrition and, and lifestyle. So it's not something that you can you know, detect with inflammatory fact, you know, uh, testing and so forth, mm-hmm. except perhaps in the in sort of acute phases of a severe migraine, right. probably have some elevations in inflammatory markers. Um, but, uh, but outside of that, you wouldn't know. But I think the key would be if you have any type of recurring headache syndrome right. and, you know, by all accounts, your head and your brain are fine, um, then it's overwhelmingly likely that your, you know, nutrition 
uh, plays a huge role in that. So let's say somebody listening and a lot of people listening to this do have their nutrition dialed in quite well to the sugar-free, gluten-free ancestral diet that you're promoting. Um, they're paleo, they're ketogenic, they're primal, you know, so on and so forth. What could be some other things that would keep them having headaches um, that are apart from maybe the diet? And then we'll get into the diet stuff. Um, so, I mean, in that sense, it's probably more lifestyle factors. And okay. one of the things one of the things that, um, you know, I talk about in the book is that the that migraines appear to be generated in the brain in the area called the hypothalamus, which is involved with maintaining homeostasis, um, which is just sort of maintenance of, of stable conditions inside the body. So obviously nutrition plays a huge role in that. Um, but other factors are important there as well. So probably for someone with headaches, the biggest ones that would, you know, even if with the nutrition still dialed in, the things that would probably make the biggest contribution were disruptions in the sleep-wake cycle, and then, uh, and then problems with, uh, you know, stress, mental health, that sort of thing. So, mm-hmm. uh, if you have, uh, you know, stress hormones going up and down all day long, that's a that's a setup for headaches, um, and probably through the same mechanisms, the sleep does does a similar thing. But right, um, but yeah. So those are those are the two things I look into. Uh, biggest when I'm when I see someone with uh, headaches and that you know nutrition seems to be doing good right probably the other one is actually the medicines people take for yeah themselves can actually um, cause you to get into these recurring headache syndromes that can last for a very long time um, so that's always something I'm looking into well and it sounds like all of this fits within that ancestral lifestyle template anyway of proper sleep and good uh, sunshine to get vitamin D levels uh, and let's talk about vitamin D for a second what role does that play in this could a low level of vitamin D trigger migraines um, you know there's not a, I don't there's not a strong association between the two okay. um, but uh, but uh, but it, partly that's just because it hasn't I don't think it's been looked into the uh, you know, very scientifically. Have you seen um, it in your patients, though, that the ones that tend to have, uh, you know, the worst migraines tend to have maybe a lower level of vitamin D, or do you even check that? Uh, well, I do check. I Almost everybody I see is, is vitamin D deficient. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's so, so yes. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so that's why it's hard for me to tell, you know, but yes, um, I think there is probably an association. And certainly, you know, it makes sense uh, The you know, the, the, the more you're out in the sunlight during the day, right. you know, the more your your circadian rhythms are entrained, yes. the less susceptible you'll be to, my, to migraines. I mean, that's just one of the one of the things we know about it. So that certainly would correlate with vitamin D levels, if nothing else. So are there, I mean, are there, I was going to say, are there any other uh, common correlations that you see amongst the patients? Um, Obviously you see a whole bunch of different patients and virtually all of them have migraines of, of one degree or another. Are there other things that you see happening over and over again, like elevated maybe blood sugar levels or, you know, is there something that you see habitually over and over in migraine sufferers? Um, we certainly, there is definitely a correlation between obesity, metabolic syndrome, and a rise in, in migraine prevalence. So, wow. um, so yes, I mean, the, the, more, the more metabolic derangement there is, the worse headaches become. So mm-hmm. you don't, it's not a precursor, it's not a prerequisite for headaches or migraines, but it certainly will aggravate it. So, so yeah, that's definitely a factor. We, and we know that, you know, that, uh, 
obesity, you know, the rates of migraine are about double what they are in the normal wow. population. And then um, there's uh, a pretty strong literature with, with that weight loss, uh, fat loss is associated with uh, a significant reduction in migraine frequency during the during the period of weight loss. Wow. So yeah, there's a there's a strong and tight correlation between metabolic dysregulation and and migraines. I got you. So you said there's about a 15% uh, of the population dealing with migraines today. I wonder what it was like a half century ago when the diet wasn't quite as bad as it is now. Do you know the statistics from before? I don't know precise statistics, but I know it's been going up. Um, and it's still I mean, going up. Yeah, it's still going up. And I, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, it's it certainly deserves to be categorized under the disease of civilization um, you know, umbrella. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it's, I mean, it's not something, you know, I've looked a lot to see if there's any documentation of it in hunter-gatherer societies, right. indigenous populations, and I, I don't find anything about, you know, people, people being taken care of for, for headaches that weren't from, a you know, a knife in their skull or something. Um, <laughs> so, Hammer from their so, fellow caveman, yes. Exactly. <laughs> right, right. So, I mean, obviously, you know, I, the rates of it are have gone up. Um, when, you know, when exactly that started, it's hard to say, but I think probably turn of the century, at least in the neurological literature, you know, turn of the 20th uh, century, it was probably still somewhat of a, a medical oddity, you know, yeah. uh, nothing like what we see today. Well, and certainly the Industrial Revolution uh, with the processing of grains and kind of the manufacturing of quote unquote food. I, I, I don't dare call grain based products anymore food, but food like products right. that are in our market today that people buy as food certainly don't help things and all the excitotoxins that they throw. You know, I, I look at a Doritos now Absolutely. and oh it's my just gosh. full of just junk that could easily trigger a migraine. Yep. The worst headache I ever had as a kid was after a bag of Doritos. <laughs> and then, then there's, I mean, yeah, there's right. I mean, when you all bets are off when you talk about processed foods because we just, I mean, we don't even know, you know, you know what's doing what. People um, don't even realize they have food scientists that purposely make these things highly palatable, and and they put God knows what in it to to make right. you want to eat more and more and more. And ironically, that more and more makes you more obese, and yeah. in turn turns into these migraines and 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 worse. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a vicious cycle, isn't it? Yeah. So the sad diet, we, we got it. Uh, a lot of people are trying to deal with it. They're trying to circumnavigate. They hear about this thing called paleo. They hear about low-carb diets and ketogenic diets, but they're kind of confused about it. How do you approach your patients when you say, okay, you got a diet problem? How do you educate them without confusing them even more? Yeah, that's a, that's really hard. <laughs> and that's, yeah. a, that's something, yeah, I mean, because, uh, you know, I can tell them one thing and then they'll turn on the TV and they get home or read something and, you know, who knows what it's going to say. So right. yeah, that's really tricky. And plus, you know, we have, I see a lot of people who come with the expectation of just getting a, you know, a pill or something like that to, right. to fix their problem and aren't even invested in the idea of making any type of meaningful change. <laughs> They're um, probably like, oh, but, great, you're one of those doctors. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> right. So I'm, I I love it if someone comes in and says, you know, I'm, I'm willing to do anything. And, yeah. You know, that's great. Um, do you have any the, patients the, that ever push back and say, I just want the pill doc? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, wow. that's <laughs> yes, horrible. Totally. Yeah, it is. 
Um, but so, but with them, you know, so the first step is always just, I mean, just getting people used to the idea that, you know, what you do, the life you lead, the food you eat has an impact on your health and the way you're feeling, you know, I mean, for many, that's not even, you know, on their radar that this could even be related to, to the one I'm eating and so forth. So that's where I start. And then, you know, I, I, my first step is always to see if I can get people to, to cut out sugar and, and, and maybe bread yeah. and, um, you know, and then I have them come back. And if, if they've, if, if they've made any efforts in that regard, then I know we're kind of, we're kind of on our way, mm-hmm. but, um, it's a, you know, I, I it's always, a. um, a matter of continually reinforcing it to prevent them from being sabotaged by all the all the other forces that are out there to maintain the status quo. So, well, and I would presume that once they start eating that way and they see the relief from the migraines that they're dealing with, it's going to be kind of like what happened to you. You were specifically trying to you know do this for other reasons, and the migraine was just a happy coincidence that happened for you. I wonder if maybe some of the other effects that your patients are seeing, they come back and go, no way, my blood sugar is under control now. Well, what's going on here? Absolutely. That's right. So, I mean, right. So, and I'm, that's why I'm always trying to find the lowest hanging fruit to start with so <laughs> yeah. that people, you know, can, can do it and then, and then see the results because that speaks more than anything else. I mean, right. that, you know, I don't, you know, I don't cheat with bread anymore. Not because I'm, you know, my willpower is that great. Just because I don't want, it, you know, I want an aching head, you know. So, so that's a, that's a, you know, a huge motivator. And so, if you can, yeah, if you can just get those little bit of results and get people on board with the idea that that this will, you know, make a difference in how they feel, then, then, uh, you know, that's a really good first step. Yeah. We're back yet again with Katie Coleman from the Keep It Real Food Company. Visit their website, keepitrealfoodcompany.com. And when you go there, click on the products link and you'll see all the wonderful products that this company has to offer. Now, Katie, tell us about some of the great products that you offer at the Keep It Real Food Company. Okay, well, our most popular is our no-grain granola, where we use seeds instead of oats, so it's full of good, healthy fats to keep you going all day. We have two kinds of cookies. We've got flourless peanut butter cookies. Cookies! (laughs) And flourless cocoa nib cookies, which use an almond base. And then my personal favorite is our CD crackers, which are made entirely of seeds, flax, sesame, chia, and salt and pepper. These fit great into my ketogenic diet and are really tasty topped with guacamole or nice fatty cheese. Yeah. And all the products that you sell are gluten-free, dairy-free, soy-free, grain-free, and all are low in on the glycemic index. So really great co- company with awesome products. Check them out. Keepitrealfoodcompany.com. So do you ever use the K-word ketosis with your patients and trying to explain maybe something that could help them? Or again, do you do the the low-hanging fruit and don't even try to convolute the issue? You just say, okay, this is what you do and you get better and it just happens to put them in a state of ketosis. Yeah, it depends. So, um, and, and not everybody, you know, uh, not everybody am I aiming for that. Right. Uh, you know, a lot of folks, if they just will get, you know, get back to an ancestral eating framework. Real food. You know, <laughs> real food, exactly. I mean, it's, it, it's amazing. But, but yeah, so you get back to that framework and they'll get better. But there are definitely some, and it depends, depends on how, how bad off they are to begin with. So, How do you determine already, how bad off they are? 
like uh you know if someone's having 10 or more headache days a month mm. um then then that's where i'll start out with you know uh, carb restriction like deliberate carb restriction because most people if we're gonna if we're cutting out bread and sugar you know they're gonna be for, you know cutting cutting back their carbs significantly right just just by doing that but but deliberately restricting if their headaches are that bad um and then you know so for the most part that'll work um and then for the for the subset where we're still not making as much progress then we'll get specific about putting them into ketosis and that sort of thing yeah Um, and probably people with blood sugar dysregulation that might be the cause of their migraines it would just make sense to get that under control Absolutely, yeah. And then in turn, that will help with the uh, with the headaches. That's cool. Yeah, definitely. cool stuff. So, what do your uh, neurologist colleagues think about you focusing so much on nutrition? Because in your world, Doctor David Perlmutter is a world renowned neurologist, but there, there's really not a lot that are talking. It's kind of like cardiologists, uh, right? Uh, you know, and and talking about low carb, high fat diets. Um, they're kind of poo pooed within the profession. Um, I'm assuming yeah. it's the same in your profession. I mean, it is. I don't think it's, you know, for the most part, it's just because it hasn't, like you say, it just hasn't been part of the consciousness. It hasn't, you know, we haven't even, you know, considered the role of nutrition in most, uh, you know, illnesses. And and when we have, it's been a sort of very cursory thing. So I don't know if, it, you know, I don't think it's as much deliberate resistance to the idea as it is just the fact that people aren't that familiar with thinking about it. Um, so I think, you know, there's probably more room for people to be receptive than we might think. Right. Um, and and even in, even more so, you know, if you have patients that are getting better, you know, with something, then uh, that's a that's a big motivator. So, you know, for for me and for, you know, trying to spread these ideas, I think one of the reasons I wrote a book about it was to try to get patients to adopt it, go back to their doctors and say, look, what's working for me, you know. And I think that's a way to open up the minds of a lot of other physicians is, is if they see, you know, people getting results with these right. intractable problems, um, that's, you know, that's pretty eye-opening and convincing. So I think well, that's a good way to kind of open people's minds about it. You would think neurologists would be uniquely uh, embracing ketogenic diets, for example, with yeah. all the brain health benefits that we know, that we know, that we know, that we know, have strong evidence for, right. you know, in treating conditions, just horrible conditions, dementia, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, and of course, the prevention thereof of all, all said diseases, headaches. I mean, all these things are things we know from the scientific literature, a ketogenic diet, or at the very least, an ancestral-based low-carb diet are helping with, it would seem like the medical profession uh, in general would embrace it, but for sure, neurologists. Yeah, I, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, most the, the place where most neurologists have experience with it is with epilepsy. And, you know, we know how, what a profound impact it can, it can make, particularly right. in childhood epilepsies when nothing else helps. Um, and But the, the, the big problem is fat phobia, you know. And so if you can... If we can, if we can over to overcome that, I think it'll open the floodgates for this kind of thing. But the problem, I think, most physicians would 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 feel who you know aren't haven't aren't that into the nutrition stuff is I'm I'm you know how can I recommend a high fat diet 
to my patients, you know, what's yeah. their cardiologist going to think, what, you know, what's, am I going to get sued, you know, that sort of thing. So that's right. the, that's the real, that's the real trick. And I think it all comes back to our, you know, our, our phobia about fat and particularly saturated fat. Well, um, and the beliefs that that fat, especially saturated fat is contributing to the very obesity in the patients that you're trying to help <laughs> you know, lose exactly. the fat and to lose <laughs> their headaches. And you have a, a rather unique view of obesity from your um, clinical perspective. Would you mind sharing that? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I sort of, uh, you know, think of most things in neurological terms. And so a lot of the, you know, obesity debate, we center around the idea of whether, you know, it's about calories or not. Right. And uh, people, you know, would used to accuse, you know, people like low-carb proponents of saying that calories don't matter or they're unimportant and then we're denying thermodynamics and that right. sort of thing. Um but, uh, you know, I like to think about it in terms of homeostasis, um, which is, you know, sort of we have all these domains in the body that have to remain under very tight parameters like temperature and mineral concentration and fluid balance and so forth. And, um, and body fat is one of those. And so we have these systems in place to, to try to keep our body fat within a you know, pretty tight range. Um, and if we, you know, if we want, and so all these mechanisms for, you know, maintaining homeostasis, they all adapted and evolved in a very specific environment, right, under a range of environmental conditions, which was our, you know, ancestral habitat. Um, and if we want to, if we want to move out of that, you know, then we have to, you know, we have to find technological adaptation. So if we want to move to the Arctic, you know, we don't have the evolutionary history of a polar bear. So we have to figure out ways to keep warm, right? So we, our, our, our systems for, for maintaining body temperature in that, in that environment aren't going to work. Right. So the exact same thing is true with body fat. Um, you know, if you, if you stick to the, you know, environmental inputs that your brain expects, um, then it will ma- maintain body fat within a, t- you know, a tight range. Um, you know, every other animal out in the wild does this effortlessly. Um, but if you want to, you know, escape your evolutionary environment, you want to eat foods, you know, that come in boxes that were not available to our ancestors, then you're going to have to figure out some technological adaptation to maintain your body fat, just like you would to maintain your body temperature in the Arctic. So the, the crude measure we've, we've figured out for that is, is, um, is you know, calories, is, ca- is counting calories and, you know, burning our food in a, in a calorimeter and trying to figure out the energy content and then calculating how much we should have each day. So, so my view is, you know, if you with the you know, problem of obesity, you know, you have, you have two choices to trying to maintain body fat within a healthy range. You can either, you know, sort of stick to the foods that your brain expects you to eat and it will do it naturally for you. Or you can, you know, eat things that are outside of uh, our evolutionary experience that your brain doesn't expect. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to have to figure out how to, how to, you're going to have to count calories and use a technological adaptation to, to keep your body fat within range. So for, for me that, you know, that seems to help, you know, get it out of the, is the calories matter? Do they not? Well, they matter, but if you stick to the, you know, the right foods, um, you don't have to worry about it, you know? Right. And, and at some point we have to get away from, uh, weight mattering as much as our culture likes to think it matters. I think right. someone can be metabolically very healthy, and yet people would look at them on the outside and say, "Oh my gosh, that they're very unhealthy," just simply based on how much body fat they have. Now, body fat can be a sign that there are things going on 
uh, underlying that might need to be addressed. But body right. fat in and of itself does not tell someone's state of health, just as a thin person could be incredibly metabolically unhealthy um, at the same time as being thin. And yet people would look at those people and say health. Yeah, right. It's just a it's just a, a marker, a correlation. But it's certainly yeah. You can have you can have exceptions to both of those, and and it's it's not uh, certainly not one to one. We have plenty of people who you know appear to be healthy, and then they develop type two diabetes, and everybody's right. taken by surprise. And but but yeah. So there's a lot more to it than just than just body fat. You're right. For sure. Well, let's dig into in, in the last few moments, and, and thank you for talking about your book again, The Migraine Miracle, A Sugar-Free, Gluten-Free, Ancestral Diet to Reduce Inflammation and Relieve Your Headaches for Good. Got headaches? Check out the book. We'll have a link to it in the show notes section at theliveinlowcarbshow.com. And definitely check out MyMigraineMiracle.com for more information from Dr. Josh. So uh, before we go, though, I wanted to talk about your experience doing some pharmaceutical research because we kind of rag on Big Pharma on this show quite a bit. And they they deserve it, quite frankly. Um, And you actually have been involved in the past uh, for several years in doing uh, research for the pharmaceutical company. Can can you kind of... Tell us a little bit about that experience. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I was. Uh, it's in the first several years after my residency was involved in quite a few clinical trials. So, you know, things for medicines for Alzheimer's disease, medicines for stroke and migraine and epilepsy and so forth. And uh, which, you know, we always want better treatments than what we have. You know, we we have very few cures out there. So, it's you know, this is this is important research to do. And I would say, you know, I probably was part of maybe 60 or more clinical trials in, in, in those different areas. And, you know, each one is a, is a you know, a, a drug that's been tested in animal models and has theoretical reasons for why it should work. It's been tested in safety studies and so forth. Um, but of all the, all the ones that I was a part of, not a single one was positive, you know, not a single one ever was had results that then, you know, allowed it to go to market. Wow. Um, which is a pretty discouraging thing to see, right? Yeah. I mean, so, and... Um, well, unless you're the and, patient that doesn't want to get the ill effects from it. <laughs> <laughs> True, right. But, uh, but so, you know, and so it's, a, it's, it's discouraging on the one hand, right. but it also, I think, you know, hammers home the point that medications probably aren't going to save us when it comes to most everything, most, you know, most disorders and most disease. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, there are they're always going to remain, at least with the, you know, technology that we have now, they're always going to remain a crude instrument at, at shaping health. Um, and, um, you know, even when they work, they very rarely address root causes or, right. or they know, cover or symptoms. Right, they cover symptoms. Or they deal with um, things that we've been told are important, cholesterol, and uh, yeah, they oh, don't absolutely. really mean anything at all. Right, and that's, in, you know, it's, it's easier to do a study that does that. But it also is yeah. something they can show a patient, see, we lowered your cholesterol by 30 to 40%. Aren't we good? Isn't this a great pill? And not telling people that that didn't improve their heart health risk factors uh, one iota. Right. Absolutely. Yep. So, so it's right. It's easy to get fixated on the numbers, and we ter- certainly uh, have been w- guilty of doing that way too much. I'm sure the pharmaceutical companies 
know that and they they play those games oh and sure. they convince the the doctors that these numbers do matter and then they pass along that information to their patients through their uh education from the pharmaceutical reps oh, right. uh, no i'm not i'm not jaded at all <laughs> <laughs> yes uh, no, I mean it's you know it's unfortunate, but yeah, it is it is a game, and there are definitely ways to game the system. And, yeah. and having been and the you know doing that research, I you know I understand how it is, and I understand just how hard it is to actually get a good you know clinical trial done. You know, even ones that come out yeah. positive, there's so many potential pitfalls and ways that they can go wrong, and so it's hard to it's hard to trust much of anything, um, which which you know the power of anecdotal experience uh, you know it becomes even more powerful when you when you think of that yeah it's also why you know i was i find the 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 observational data on you know hunter gatherer tribes and that sort of thing and, and their health so uh, important and, and meaningful because it's really hard. I mean, especially when you're talking about diet studies and so forth, it's really right. hard to get, you know, get anything of quality. Well, um, and none so. of those hunter gatherer tribes had pill deficiencies. <laughs> they did not. Not one single one. And none of them were testing their LDL. Right. Yep. Or anything. Yeah, I was just looking um, as of the recording of this, there was a, a new. Um, a diet pill that just got FDA approval. It's supposedly the third one in uh, more than a decade to get approval from the FDA called Contrave, and it's supposed to be a combination of an antidepressant and a, and a, and a um, you know, some appetite uh, uh, suppression pill. And they're like throwing it all into one. And I'm going, we're throwing uh, stuff against the wall and saying, let's hope something sticks. Well, that's. <laughs> Yep, you get right. You own a you own a patent on a molecule, so you figure out any way you can use it. Yep, that's kind of the the, the unfortunate approach that's been used. You know what I wish they would do is all those studies that you were you said like sixty while you were working there. I wish they yeah. would be forced to make those public. This is what we were testing. This is the right. the. the you know the drug we were trying to look at the classification of it and these were the actual results even if they didn't do like a news headline about it if they just right. had like a website set up that said you know uh drug com or something like that you know the ones that <laughs> failed yeah. um and and let people see and make it public knowledge like a freedom of information act uh, are, are people allowed to find that information out somewhere somehow I, at this point, I don't believe so. So they I mean, bury it. To, to, yeah, to to require it. Wow. Um, and hopefully that'll be the, the case, you know, in the future. But but yeah, at this point, I mean, that's a huge huge problem. If you, you know, not to get too technical, but if you have a, you know, if you, just with statistics, you know, we use typically use a p value of point zero five, which means there's only a five percent or less chance that something was that a study, you know, result that was positive was was due to chance, and we consider that meaningful and we. Right. You know that's sort of the standard, but if you you know if you conduct twenty trials and you bury nineteen of them, <laughs> then you're going to get and you're going to get one positive one. Then, oh, then, and then that happens go. a lot. <laughs> that happens. Yeah, a I mean lot. that certainly that that sort of thing can certainly happen. So um, many of so. the uh, and only because I wrote a book about it last year, but so many of the cholesterol trials on those drugs, the statin drugs, they bury the heck out of the ones that look bad. So then right. they publish the ones that, oh, look, we've got great clinical published studies, and yet they kind of uh, you know downplay the side effects uh, that they see in some of these other stories that uh, studies that they kill. 
it's yeah. it's sad, Josh, and but that's the state of where we are in pharmaceutical research. And I really appreciate you kind of giving giving us some insights. I really would love to talk to somebody that's like deep into it and <laughs> tell us all the dirty, yeah. salacious details. I know, I know. It's not you know there are definitely good people in pharmaceutical companies who want to do want to do good things and want to you know. But it's just it, a lot of it just has to do with the way the system is set up, and right. it's just you know it's 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 set up to reward the behaviors that we don't want to be rewarding. So. Yeah, that's the issue there. Yeah. His name is Dr. Joshua Turknet. Again, go check him out at MyMigraineMiracle.com. Well, Josh, thanks so much for joining us here today on the Livin' La Vida Low Carb Show. Thank you so much for having me, Jimmy. Coming up next time on the Livin' La Vida Low Carb Show, we'll have Simone Miller here talking about her brand new book, The Zen Belly Cookbook. Visit our website at theliveinlowcarbshow.com slash show notes. And email us anytime at llvlcshow at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.